This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The term insider trading was realistically built out around the Wall Street activity that we saw in the 1980s and 90s. It happened before that and has happened since, but really brought to to the public in general through uh, the film industry. A lot of people may remember the days of Wall Street, but rules around insider training are designed to prevent this type of activity. Unfortunately, according to our next guest, the fact that rules really haven't changed in the last couple of decades means that loopholes exist and this type of activity continues. Dan Taylor, Associate Professor of Accounting at the Wharton School, joins us. He recently wrote an opinion piece for Bloomberg on the need to try and close these loopholes. Dan, great to talk to you. hope you're doing well. Uh, thanks for having me, Dan. Everything's great here. Thank you. So lay out your concerns in general right now around these loopholes. So, I, I mean, you touched on it sort of briefly in, in the sense that these, these laws or these rules haven't really been, uh, been updated in a while. Um, one of the rules that we talk about uh, in the op-ed, uh, my, um, my co-author on that was SEC Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw. One of the things that we talk about is what's known as Rule 10B-51 plan. And, uh, you know, sparing the technicalities there, uh, this rule basically allows an insider to commit in advance to a trade uh, at the time where they don't have any, uh, you know, material non-public information. So the notion would be, I don't know anything, you know, nefarious today, so I I sign a contract or a non-binding contract saying, hey, liquidate my shares three months from now. Um, and that provides safe harbor uh, or safeguard uh, against allegations that that the trade was was due to material non-public information. If three months from now, for example, um, the vaccine that my company is developing sort of you know blows up or doesn't uh, doesn't go through, uh, and so that that rule has been what's been used a lot by the um, you know pharmaceutical companies Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax. Uh, and and whatnot, and that's what's kind of brought the spotlight back onto that, back onto that rule. We conducted an analysis, my co-authors and I, um, uh, from the Wharton Forensic Analytics Lab, and we actually looked at how these trades perform. So we can observe the date when the contract is signed, so to speak, and we can observe the date that the trade is executed. And we find that these so-called contracted trades or pre-planned trades actually perform much better um, than sort of normal trades. Uh, so it, it's almost as if the executives are using this legal shield. Rather than using it as a shield, they're using it as a sword uh, to basically provide legal cover from some, some of the more sketchy trades that they're conducting. Legal cover or, or to a degree, kind of a level of abuse in, in, terms, of, in terms of moving forward with this? Yeah, I mean, the, the issue is, is that the rule provides or gives this what we call this veneer of, of legal uh, shielding to these trades because the executives and the companies, when they're often called on it, they say, well, the trade was planned well in advance of when it, when it executed, so, you know, it's not insider trading. And while there are a great deal, a uh, number of companies and executives that use these plans correctly, um, we were certainly not calling for the plans to be uh, removed. Um, there is evidence that uh, there are more than a few companies and executives that are using that, uh, let's call it that veneer of, you know, shielding from legal scrutiny to, to engage in, 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 let's call it, uh, you know, suspicious or, or, or uh, sketchy, sketchy trading activity. 
Right. So you, you think about it like if you're an executive and you want to, unfortunately, there are some out there that want to engage in illicit activity. You'd want to do it in, in a place where you where you think no one's looking. And the place where no one's looking right now is these 10B51 pre-planned trades. Sure. And so we called, uh, the commissioner and I called for some reforms uh, yeah. to these plans that would basically clamp down on their usage. So, for example... You know, if you sign the contract to execute a trade in the future, you have to wait six months before the trade can execute. So mm-hmm. what we found in, in the data was is that some executives were signing uh, a contract to execute a trade tomorrow. And, you know, why should that be entitled to, uh, you know, a, a legal shield or an affirmative defense from insider trading? Um, so we called for what's known as a cooling-off period of six months. Um, and uh, we also called for uh, you can't, shouldn't be able to, adopt that contract, and then have the trade execute before an earnings announcement. So, for example, it would be conceivable that the executive could um, adopt uh, a contract in December to liquidate shares, you know, in the next 40 days right before the earnings announcement. And that's also not consistent with, uh, you know, with, with somebody using this plan to sell legitimately, but rather to sell opportunistically. So we kind of want to separate the wheat from the chaff and, yeah. you know, go in and, and design rules that would uh, not hinder proper usage of the plans, but would hinder opportunistic use. Is it a possibility that, and I think this happens a lot when you have a change of administration, but is it a possibility that the SEC under President Biden will move forward to kind of review these rules? Uh, it is. It is certainly my hope. Um, I, I think it's. It's the. It's my co-authors. I think it's Commissioner Crenshaw's uh, hope. I can't speak for her. She can't speak for the agency. Obviously, only her own personal views. Um, but I, I do think that's the hope: is that there would be this uh, this reform around this rule uh, to sort of you know to clamp down um, relative to to prior prior administrations. And the other thing to keep in mind is is you know disclosure. There is no disclosure yeah. of these plans. There is yeah. no required disclosure of the trades themselves. Yeah. Uh, so that that's a problem. You know, a bad behavior flourishes when there's no sunlight. And so one of the things we call it for in the op-ed is, is just disclose everything. If you're adopting one of these plans, disclose it. Disclose the date you adopted. Disclose that the trade was pursuant to one of these plans. Um, and so, you know, sunlight is really the best disinfectant. And so you have the setting where you have these plans, you have no disclosure, and you have some evidence that they're being abused. It's really straightforward fixes here. You know, and, and hopefully it's bipartisan. You know, it's, it's not really clear sure. to me what the arguments for are against disclosure of these plans um, and sort of against uh, clamping down on, on these abuses. Well, you did bring up in the article former SEC Chair Jay Clayton. Uh, what is his thoughts around this? Yeah, so he was actually, you know, to give credit where credit is due, he was actually the first in a Senate uh, Senate or, or Congress testimony to actually suggest a four- to six-month cooling-off period. So cooling-off period is, is that period between when you adopt the plan or sign that contract and then when the contract actually executes a trade. So, you know, he was the previous administration, previous chair of the SEC. He's a Republican, you know, Caroline Crenshaw, my co-author, is a Democrat, and both of them are on the same page here. Um, yeah. So, like, like we echo um, uh, Chairman Clayton's um, recommendation for a four to six month cooling off period. So, I do think that you know it's hard to find bipartisanship, but you know no one likes insider trading. <laughs> 
So sure. I, I do think that there's hope here for, for movement uh, on disclosure of the trades and the plans and also on, you know, maybe some changing some rules to make it uh, harder, uh, harder to use opportunistically. Well, and I would think, you know, you also have to look at this larger scope is that, you know, the trade will have an impact uh, if it, as you said, if it is not transparent, it will have an impact on a lot of investors at some point down the line. And to a degree, you're trying to, you know, make these changes that it protects investors from some of this activity. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's it's really, you know, there's a lot of talk now about ESG, um, and I think this is really the G, the governance in ESG. I mean, you think about if you're a governance professional, an institutional investor, um, you know, like a CalPERS or a pension fund, you would think that you'd want to know whether the CEO has, you know, has written a plan to liquidate, say, $150 million of, of his or her shares. Uh, so a good example is, is that Les Moonves, you know, from CBS, back when he was CEO, he signed a 10B51 plan to liquidate over $145 million of his shares over the course of, you know, multiple years. Now, if I'm a governance professional or I'm the board and I'm evaluating we should pay this individual more money, you know, I'm looking at the fact that, well, he just signed a, a document to cash out most of his holdings. Yeah. So if I give him more shares, he's probably just going to sell them. Well, what good is that? The purpose of the share compensation is to align the interest of the shareholders and the executives, so that they hold on to the shares, so that they benefit yeah. from changes in stock price, increases in stock price. But if they're just going to sell, then why would I want to give the individual more, uh, more shares? So I do think it's, you know, it's an important governance issue to know what executives' plans are with respect to their equity holdings. Have about a minute left, Dan. So, uh, what's the hope off of this, and 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 how realistic are you that that change is possible? Because it's certainly, you know, as we know, <laughs> looking at Washington D.C., things have kind of gotten entrenched over the last few years, and it becomes harder and harder to to make some of the changes that really probably should be made. Yeah, I mean, I, I think politics is the wild card here. You know, I, I'm sort of the <laughs> I'm sort of the warden professor who's been shielded from politics uh, for, for most of my career, so I don't really have a sense on how these things play out politically. But what I am hopeful for is that, or what gives me signs of hope, is that if the previous Republican chair of the SEC is calling for something and one of the current uh, SEC commissioners, who's a Democrat, is also calling for something, the same, you know, in some sense very similar things, that I would think that there would be, you know, bipartisan agreement within the commission to sort of to move forward and, uh, you know, and reform these areas. Um, you know, yeah. but we'll have to see. Uh, Gary Gensler, who's the incoming uh, chairman of the CEO, yet to be confirmed uh, by the Senate. And so I, I think that's, you know, he, he will have his own agenda. He'll bring his own agenda to things. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, that his agenda will include reforming these rules, but I don't have any private information. Let's put it that way. No insider trading on this for Dan Taylor. Dan, thanks very much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Dan. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Dan Taylor, Associate Professor of Accounting at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.